so I, I want to talk today on prayer and what it is and, and what we are a little uh, out of out of the Sermon on the Mount. And you know how much I love the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, to be honest with you, it's the best sermon I've ever read. Uh, it should be the best sermon anybody's ever read because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preached it. And if there's anybody who can preach a sermon, it would be Jesus. Uh, if there's a model for preaching, it would be Jesus. And so when I hear Sermon on the Mount, I say, now that ought to be a good message. And it is. Just to be honest with you, uh, I, along with Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book about that thick on the Sermon on the Mount. And he whittles on every verse and jumps and goes broad and goes back in and goes broad. If you've ever read Lloyd-Jones, you know how he does that. Back and forth. And, and even Lloyd-Jones, after that thick of a book, says himself, there's not enough ink, there's not enough words, there's not enough to pull out of the profundity of what this is saying. And I'm telling you, if there's a discipleship program in the world, it is in these three chapters. Matthew 28 uh, it says, Go into the world, uh, baptizing in the name of the Father, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all of my commandments. Well... If you want to get a sight of all of God's commandments and Christ's commandments, Jesus does nothing more in the Sermon on the Mount than summarize the Ten Commandments, or uh, expounds on the Ten Commandments and tells you what they mean from God's perspective. And what we need is God's perspective on His commandments. So that's what He does. That's what He does. So uh, I'm going to read a few verses here, and then I'm going to say a few words, and we'll look at something there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, And when you pray... You are not to be as hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into the inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will repay you. And when you are praying, do not use meanless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows uh, what you need before you pray, before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Father, I pray for just a few moments as we look at the model you showed us to use. Father, I pray that you'll help us understand what it means to practice Christianity, to practice righteousness, to do your work. Father, I pray that you'll Help us to enjoy these moments with our word open together that we can see you together and see what you want us, how you want us to live, what you want us to do, what it means to serve you, and what it means to practice righteousness. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So on CNN this morning, the Minister of Culture under the Mayor of Paris there in France uh, was speaking on CNN, and as you well know by now, Notre Dame has burned or is very badly damaged there. Apparently, uh, accident, something left in the uh, attic, uh, maybe, I don't know, paint thinner they were renovating there. Apparently, something happened, and anyway, Notre Dame has burned and we've seen that the last several days on the news. But I found it interesting what the Minister of Culture said in Paris. The Minister of Culture. 
Now, he prefaced everything he said by saying this first. I'm not a believer. Now, and it's what he said. He said, I'm not a believer. But, now this is the minister of culture. But the burning of this cathedral is one of the greatest tragedies that has happened to the West. And he goes on and on, uh, and I'm paraphrasing what he's saying there. And he's talking about the rebuilding of this and, and how the rebuilding of this will rejuvenate the culture of Europe and rejuvenate and help us to focus back on our central identity as a culture. And he's been on and on and on in that vein, in that vein. In other words, he's not a believer, but we need religion. He's not a believer, but we need a cultural religion to draw us together. He's not a believer, but we need a worldview. Now, I understand what worldview studies are, and I understand the importance of studying worldviews. But let me say this to you, ladies and gentlemen. Christ is not a viewpoint. He's a person. And again, don't get me wrong. I'm not against worldview studies. Uh, I'm not against that type of curricula at all. But if we're not careful... We have a viewpoint, uh, what's called a phenomenological view of religion. Religion is just something that the masses use in order to gather us together around a cultural idea that gives us unity as, as a Western culture or an Eastern culture or a culture like that. Can I say this to you? My Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is more than that. He incarnated, a person incarnated and died on the cross and resurrected and is going to return as a literal judge one day. He is a person. He's not a viewpoint. A viewpoint. But if you read philosophy over the last 2,500 years, you will see that no philosopher, in other words, atheism is not really a problem. Someone sent me the other day a clip out of a, uh, a sitcom, uh, Last Man Standing. Uh, I don't know what year that was on. But it's a, 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 a clip out of a sitcom there, out of that sitcom. And uh, it was about one of the characters in there who was a prepper. He's one of these guys who prepare for the apocalypse by getting a cabin in the mountains and getting power saws and ammunition and food and dry goods and all. And a, a prepper, as it is. And the prepper there in the sitcom, uh, they said. Uh, uh, he said, what, have you got? what else do you have in there? He said, well, I've got a Quran and a Bible. The, the prepper said that. And the guy asked him, said, why do you have a Quran and a Bible? He said, because I don't know how it's going to come down yet. And what you read doesn't matter how it comes down. As long as where it comes down, I've got the right book where we can actually come together and I can be okay in that culture. You see what I'm saying? This view of religion there. Now, if that's all religion is, if we're just trying to save a Christian culture in America or we're trying to save a Western culture, if all we're trying to do is save a, cultural for, a culture for the West, then we will go right back to medieval days and we will be right back to where we were started with. We will be right there. Al Mohler's briefing yesterday morning was over the same issue, the Notre Dame burning of the, the tabernacle of the, of the uh, cathedral there, Notre Dame Cathedral. And... Uh, if, you, if you have time today, listen to that because he touched on some of the things I am saying right now. And in Al Mohler's way, he goes from medieval Notre Dame Cathedral, Gothic transcendent, mystery transcendent, 
all the way through the French Revolution and, and all the way to now. He will take you through history. If there's anybody who can do that, he can do it, and he'll take you through that. And then comes down to the end of that and talks about the papacy and talks about evangelicalism and how we're different. And, and you'll get a pulse of what I'm talking about right now. In other words, what does it mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live? What does it mean to practice our righteousness? What is practicing righteousness? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, in the New American Standard, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness. Now, the, the King James Version will say, Alms there. And uh, in some of the older manuscripts, it's actually dikaios, dikaisene, and it is righteousness there. Uh, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward for your Father who is in heaven. So, Matthew 6 begins off, Beware how you practice your righteousness. Now, what caught me uh, recently in the last two or three days about this is that very idea of practicing your righteousness and watching how you practice it. You see, what this minister of culture is saying in Notre Dame is this. We need some public icon and practice of righteousness to draw us together. We need some public building with lots of icons and relics in it. And, and remember, if you've looked at the news, they've talked about these relics. We need all these relics and icons. Somehow we need, we need some kind of public building like this where we can have prayers and public prayer and all the Somewhere we can do that. And that's how we practice righteousness. And by the way, the Pharisees were like that. They practice it right out in front of everybody. When they tithed, they blew a horn. They wanted everybody to know. Remember when Jesus was there and the lady with two uh, mites comes in there? Remember they were blowing the horn and the Pharisees were tithing and everybody was noticing there in the temple. But Jesus notices a lady with two mites and nobody notices her and she comes and she drops it in. And she, Jesus looks at that lady, no horns blowing or anything, and says, there's the woman. There's the one who did it. Nobody sees it or anything. He says, beware when you practice your righteousness. That you don't practice it in Now, it's interesting to me, when he talks about practicing righteousness in this text here, what practice of righteousness is. In other words, apparently giving, and that's what he says, when you give your alms there, uh, verse 2, you do not do it as the hypocrites and trumpet before them in the synagogues, uh, but you do it in, in secret where the Lord will repay you. You see those verses, verses there. But it's interesting that he's talking about giving as practicing your righteousness. You see, I've never seen it like that. I've never seen giving as practicing righteousness. As a matter of fact, I've never seen, it's never dawned on me, I think I know it through the Holy Spirit, but it's never come to simplicity of it to me. I've never realized that practicing my righteousness is what I do before God. Now, that's what it's supposed to be. It's what I do before God. In other words, I tend to be quite political about my practice of righteousness. In other words, I'm going to practice it out in the open where uh, people can see me and, 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 and when I give, uh, again, I was raised uh, among 
a bunch of bootleggers and things like that. And the rule of thumb, if you bootleg, this is bootlegging 101 here. If you, if you bootleg, the rule, of, the rule of thumb is you give a lot. Uh, I had one old guy tell me, he used to haul liquor between Asheville and Raven County, Georgia, and he told me, he said, there's nowhere along I-40 or, no, or, or 74 or, or 1923. He said, there's nowhere that I can't pull off the side of the road and get in a, man, get in a, a, a man's garage and hide from the federal law. He said, people know me up and down through there. I said, well, how do they know you? He said, because when they're sick and in the hospital, I pay their bill. When they're sick and in the hospital, I pay their bill. Now, that's amazing. That's amazing. In other words, we can be very political about what we do and a lot of what we do. And this is what this minister of culture is basically saying. He's saying, we've got to have some kind of public display to draw us together there around this idea. But Jesus is saying, when you practice your righteousness and when you're giving, give it. And then he says, when you pray, when you pray, do not do as hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray. And the synagogues in the corners, and we read those scriptures. When you pray. Did you know that your prayer is a practice of righteousness? And you're actually praying before God? A lot of times we as pastors and leaders and Christian leaders spend a lot of time trying to figure out what we can do in a worship service that will make something happen. What we can do in a worship service to make something happen. In other words, if you let me design it, I believe I could make us have a great service. Ever since I've been growing close to the Lord, I've never, I've never not, never failed to be in a great service wherever I am. I don't care who's leading it. I don't care who's preaching it. I don't care what's going on. I have never failed ever since I started growing close to the Lord. I mean, in other words, when I started, when the Lord really started moving me closer and closer to Him and seeing Him in the Sermon on the Mount, I stopped being a connoisseur of worship services. I used to be a wine taster as far as worship services go. I mean, I go around and I go, I, I, I listen to about five or ten minutes of worship service and I go, nice body, nice way. You know, it's a wonderful little worship service they're having there. It's full bodied and oh, yes, it's good. Man, I could just judge a worship service, my goodness. This is a little weak here and there and weak there. Ever since I've been living in the Sermon on the Mount just a little bit, I've never seen a weak one. I get in a place where two or three people are opening the Word of God. I'm in a worship service. I'm in a corporate worship service. And your worship services ought to be designed that way, by the way. One of the things I appreciate about my pastor, Steve Scoggins, one of the things we will do, in other words, he preaches expositorily because what? He doesn't want, he wants to hide behind this book. He wants us to, and I'm fed every Sunday I go there, not because Steve Scoggins, but because he will open that book, and I know where he's at. I know where he'll be next Sunday. I know where he'll be next Sunday in the, in the Scriptures. 
And if I want to, I can read all around that today. And if I do that all week long, I'm right with him when he gets there. I get more out of it because what's he, want, what's he wanting me to do? He is wanting me not to just do it on Sunday morning. He's wanting me in my private home to have a life to where I'm opening the Bible. So he preaches in such a way in the pulpit that makes me want to go home and read the passages he's reading and stay with him to where when he gets there, I can enjoy it. You see, his purpose for doing that is to get me to have the other six and a half or six and three quarters or six and 11 hours of the week, six days and 11 hours of the week to get me to have a relationship with God by myself in private because that's where the practice of righteousness is really happening is right there. And then what comes out of that will glorify God in a mighty way and change people's lives. It will. The other thing that Pastor Scoggins does in our church is we will quote the sermon I'm about to talk to you about. We will quote together this sermon every Sunday morning. And really, there's not a lot of flowery prayers at First Baptist Hendersonville. A lot, a lot of people getting up and flowing with eloquent words and saying long prayers and things like that, and wearing phylacteries and burning candles. <laughs> there's, we, we don't have it there. Sorry if you're a connoisseur of worship. We don't have that there. But we will quote this together every Sunday morning. And every Sunday morning, what, through the expository preaching of the Bible, we realize that we're quoting this because we're, he's reminding us of the model we're supposed to use all week long when we go to God. It's, it's His model. So prayer is a work of righteousness. Prayer is the practice of your righteousness. When you pray, it's you practicing righteousness. And we ought to pray a lot and practice our righteousness before God. Because if we practice our righteousness before God a lot... Now, you know, again, we're more worried about public prayer than we are anything. In other words... Uh, in other words uh, I've told you before, some of you are more worried about how we pray in this room than how we pray outside this room. Some people are more worried about what we do in here than we do the other six days of the week out there. And what God's worried about is what you're doing there. You're not going to manipulate something to happen. Well, I'm take that back. You can manipulate something to happen. I've seen that happen a lot of times. And it goes on and on and on. But the bottom line is what we're seeking here at Fruitland for you is a maturity in God to where you, can, you have a seven-day-a-week like this to where you can sit down wherever you are. I don't care what the worship service looks like or how it sounds, what it looks like. If they're going to God, you're in it. As I've learned, I don't have to be the head of everything. I've learned I don't have to be the head of everything. As I don't have to be the one that runs out in front and, and be the head of everything. I have learned that I can sit and consume God. And what I need to be the head of is a prayer life like this. So when you pray, don't do as hypocrites do. But pray to God. Practice your righteousness before God. Shut your door and pray in secret. And your Father sees in secret will repay you. Well, prayer is the practice of your righteousness uh, before God. That's what prayer is. Let me give you right quickly as a closing several components. About four little components of prayer. When you pray, this model of prayer tells us what we ought to be doing in every day. In other words, I say every hour. 
You say, how do I do this? How do I do that every hour, Scott? I'm in a class. How do I do it? I'm preaching sometimes. How do I do it every hour? I'm working. Well, guys, I got news for you. There comes a point though where you can, you can have an attitude of prayer all day long. Uh, I was listening to a friend of mine who was uh, spending a night in a motel with another uh, evangelist. He's pretty famous. I'll not mention his name to you, but the, the guy... Uh, he said, this guy's a great preacher, love to hear him. I got to go with him this time, stay in, the dorm, stay in, the, in a motel room. And, and he said, you know, I really thought the guy would just kneel down on his knees beside the bed and make us pray all night long. He said, I went there to, to, the, to the motel room with him. We got in our beds. And he said, the guy, he said, great evangelist. He said, godly man. I said, I was in reverence of him. He didn't even ask us to pray once. I thought, well, man, he must not be holy. He's not praying once. I mean, he didn't say anything about us praying. He said he just got in bed. I mean, he didn't even get down beside his bed and say, now I lay me down to sleep. I mean, he didn't even do that. He just got in bed. He said, we didn't pray. He said, I got worried about it. He said, I started dozing off to sleep, and all of a sudden that guy starts tossing around the bed. And every now and then, all through the night, I hear him say, oh, Lord God. He said, all night. <laughs> he said, I don't know whether he's asleep or awake, but all I say is he's just groaning all night long. He said, the next day he got up and preached. He said, I'm telling you this much right now. He said, I couldn't tell whether the man was preaching or praying. That's a good sign. <laughs> That's a good sign. He said, I couldn't, tell whether, I couldn't tell the difference between whether he was preaching and praying in a pulpit. You see, what that guy told me was is that guy didn't really care what, that, what I thought about him. He just stayed with God 24-7. What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, one component in prayer is this. You recognize God's holiness. Pray then in this way. Every moment of the day, every hour of the day, it should be an hour of prayer. And then you should pull aside and pray, Our Father who art in heaven, the word is hagiadzo there, holy is thy name. And you need to start that prayer off with the very song we sang on the board there a moment ago. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is His name. That's where prayer starts, recognizing that. My prayer normally starts, Oh, dear Lord, my arm hurts. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, Lord, I'm so anxious. I'm having surgery Friday, and they're going to put me down, and I've never been put down together. I mean, I've never worried so much last week for four days. I worried to death. That I wouldn't come out of, I've never been under anesthesia before, and I'm worried I'm not going to come out from under it. I'm telling you this much right now about surgery. Anesthesia is nothing, it's the pain after that'll kill you. <laughs> uh, uh, Marion told me, she said, You don't need to worry about that, you're going to hurt after it. And, and I did. But my prayer goes like this In other words, when I woke up uh, uh, the, after that surgery, I mean, <laughs> I was saying three things they told me. I was saying, Marion, 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 pain, hurt, pain, hurt, Marion, 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 pain, hurt. And then, you know, and I slip God in there every now and then. I said, Lord, help it stop. Help it stop. And that was when I pray, uh, you get a lot of prayer out of me when my arm hurts. But God says 24-7, started off this way, Our Father who art in heaven, holy be your name. Your name is holy. Your name is holy. 
after I've been reading this, I've been convicted over the last two or three days that I've been more, more, worried about my arm, more, more worried about my arm than I am God's holiness. You say, well, that's not a problem, is it? Well, I think it is a problem. I'm, let me put it this way. The Lord showed me in my life that it's a problem. You can deal with the Lord on that's your own. But the Lord showed me in my own life that's a problem. In other words, I'll be praying privately to God as much about His holiness and recognize His holiness as I did in the room about my arm hurting. <laughs> about my arm hurting. So number one, these are components in a prayer. Recognize uh, God's holiness. Number two, seek God's will. I told some in the classroom yesterday, you know, my prayer is not normally to seek God's will. My prayer is to get God to do my will. Most of the time I'm praying, God, do mine. And you find yourself in a situation in your life, and some of you in this room are in situations now that are stressful and straining. And, and, and I know personally some of you are, and, and, and all of us are in some way in personal stressful and straining times in our life. And in and, and, and those times in my life uh, when I faced problems and difficulties and adversities in ministry and family <coughs> when I faced those uh, you know a lot of my time is just said oh God you know do this do that I want God correct this correct that fix this uh, I, I had a son about 15 years ago who rebelled hard some of you know this I had a son who rebelled hard and oh man, at that time I'm going to God and saying, God, fix this. Lord, do something. I love my son. I mean, I was in tears. I love my son. I love my son. And you know the funny thing about it is, until I got to the place where I could play God's will on that. And, and you know, God did do something with my son. Not near as fast as I wanted him to. But man, what he did 10 years later, 12 years later, after I prayed, <laughs> after I finally got to say, just my will, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. When I got to that place to say, Lord, help me be satisfied with where you got me here. If you want to change it now, I'm for that. And, you know, my heart's saying, hurry, hurry, hurry. But God, let me rest in your will. And you know what God did over a period of 12 years? is astonishing, astonishing, astonishing. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, do on earth what you're doing in heaven. Do on earth what you're doing in heaven. Number three. There's about four components. Recognize God's holiness. Number two, seek God's will, not our own. Number three, recognize your sin. Now, look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive. There's a compound. Two, uh, two verbs there. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So, you know, give us this day our daily bread. I remember Kenneth Rodney's talking about this one time, and he said, you know, he said we usually spend much of our time praying about an IRA and retirement plan, not daily bread. 
He said, nobody's usually worried about daily bread. We're worried about the retirement plan. I want the whole thing. But, you know, he said, Lord, take care of me day by day, our daily bread. What I need today, give it to me. Now, if you read the end of chapter 6, he talks about serving mammon and God. And you can't serve two masters. So I'm afraid sometimes when I'm praying, I'm serving mammon. To be honest with you, I want more than daily bread. I want steak, potatoes, you know, caviar. I've never eaten caviar, so I don't know about that. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind trying one, but that would be all I want. Uh, recognizing our sin, but recognizing that we're seeking from God His daily provision for what He has for me. For what He has for me. But then He goes right on, and forgive us our debts as we have also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, forgive us of our sins as we're forgiving our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we're forgiving our debtors. In other words, God, forgive me, and then I'll turn around and forgive others like you forgive me. Now, boy, that's a mess. That, that, that's really messy there. Because I don't normally forgive others like I forgive, like God's forgiven me. Because He forgives me over and over and over again. I must get monotonous to God over and over again. He's forgiving me over and over again. Remember the the parable Jesus gave there. The the tenant went out there, and uh, the guy says, "I can't pay you, please." Uh, forgive my debt, and he had mercy on him, forgave him, you know. And remember, he went out to his people he had under them, and what did he do? He made them pay. He made them pay. Now, I know what I just described is not good business practice. <laughs> you know, you just don't want to be a banker and forgiving everybody the debts like that. But God says, you know, I forgive you, and somebody coming asking you for mercy, you should forgive them. You know, I don't remember very much of the good things that people say to me. I mean, I appreciate them. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate the pats on the back. I do appreciate those. But I don't hardly remember any of them over the feel good I have when they're done. You know, I feel great. But I couldn't tell you anybody the pats on the back I've had and remember. But I can tell you to this day the people who have offended me. I'm thinking in my mind, when I was in high school, what a Sunday school teacher said to me one time. That's just out of line. Shouldn't have been said. Wasn't right. Any funny I can still remember that? Any funny I can still remember that? I, I'm not like God. I'm not like God. I don't forgive others like He forgives me. I don't do that. But when you're praying, that's what you're asking God to help you do. You're saying, God, help me forgive others as you forgive us. In other words, God, forgive me of my sins as I forgive others like you did, like you did. Now that scares everybody to death because you think, well, if I start forgiving everybody, that lets people off the hook. No, God's not letting people off the hook for sin. It's not what that means. not what that means. That's another sermon. But number four, and we close. Another 
component of prayer. Number one, recognize God's holiness. Number two, seek God's will. Number three, recognize your sin. Number four, trust and rest in God. Verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you always say, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Now, that verse is confusing to a lot of people. They say, well, God doesn't tempt anybody. James says so. And that's true. God doesn't tempt anybody. You know, God didn't tempt Adam and Eve. Now, he put a tree there. He, because of our free will, he, he's put a tree there and gave him access to evil. But he's not tempting them. Who tempted them? Satan tempted him with that, but according to James, who did God blame for that? He said, don't blame Satan. You're drawn away by your own lust. There's God not even blaming Satan for that. He said, Satan did tempt them. He comes there and, and encourages them, but he's blaming Adam and Eve. <laughs> You're led away by your own lust. So God doesn't tempt us. He doesn't tempt anybody, but God has. He loves us so much, has created us in His image, and we have a will that He has put us in a world where the other choice is there. The other choice is there. Now, God won't tempt you. He won't lead you, in, he won't lead you or draw you into temptation at all. He won't tempt you. So you're praying, lead us not to temptation, Lord, but deliver us from evil. Remember that James passage again? Patience, when you face various trials, struggles, and Temptations there. He says, count it all joy when you face that. Now, God won't lead you into temptation, and God won't tempt you, but He will allow you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and He will walk right there with you. And so when you're praying to God, what you're actually praying to God is not to get Him to do something, but to get into tune to what He's already doing. In other words, you're tuning your heart to get to God and to say to God, I want you to make my heart so in tune with what you're doing. Because I can tell you that's what God's doing. He's not leading you into temptation. And He is delivering you from evil. And every temptation you face and every trial you face, I promise you, you are going to walk through that. And fruitless students are an example of that. Fruitless students here, you come from all backgrounds and different uh, backgrounds and different testimonies of what's happened to you in your life. You've come out of, of, of different uh, uh, problems and you face different problems and you struggle through those and you're struggling now. But here's the good news about this morning and being in this service together. The good news is, is God's not leading you into temptation. He is delivering you from evil right now and He is accomplishing it and He's doing very well, thank you, and He's going to complete it, and we're all going to be happy in that completion. And I promise you, I've lived with you every day. God's doing, God's doing, doing good. He's doing well. I get to see you every day. And I didn't say you were perfect. Remember, I get to see you every day. I didn't say you were perfect, but I can't say this about every student in this building. Every student I've had to talk to, every student I get to discuss, every student that we get to maybe sometimes rebuke every now and then. Uh, you know something that's a funny thing to me? In 20 years of, of ministry at Fruit and Bush Bible College, uh, I've, I've had to rebuke at times, long-suffering, patient, and kind. Do you know I have never had, maybe one, but I've never had, I don't believe anybody 
Because when you open the Word of God and just talk about things in their life, they're receptive to the Holy Spirit moving. Now, that's 20 years, and that's amazing. That's amazing. I I didn't say you're perfect, but it shows me that you can take correction from the Word of God. And man, that is absolutely a sign that you're walking with God and can take correction from the Word of God. That's a sign. That's a sign from God. And that's a blessing. When you pray, don't pray as the hypocrites do, but close your door and pray and have this attitude every single day of your life. Father, help me today have this attitude more than I had yesterday. Thank you that it's been you moving me and not me moving me toward this type of prayer. And Father, it's this type of prayer that will affect this world. Not on a cultural level, but on a soul level. Our souls will be changed and transformed by the power of God's grace. And Lord, we don't need a viewpoint change. We need a transformation. We need to move the Holy Spirit. We don't need, a, we don't need just a worldview. We need You, the real God. We don't need a cultural, central culture that pulls us together in some kind of unity. We need Your holiness, God, in our lives individually. And as that works out in this world, You will be glorified. Father, help us to see those differences. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.